It didn't take much more than a bottle and two chairs to make a speakeasy. This is what Daniel Okrent said in his book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Today, join us for some stories. Get your own bottle, glass, mug, and relax. This is Speak Easily, and I'm your host, Krista Stoffer. That's a prop plant for what that is. The only thing I don't like is this, this Christmas tree. Sorry, Andrew, I'm talking about my... <laughs> I like it. It lives all year long. It can live through COVID-19. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, and it's, it is sturdy. I mean, this sucker is, this is not going anywhere. Uh, my fiance Tom has a fake plant up in his uh, office upstairs, and I'm like, he wanted something green and didn't have to take care of it. I'm like, I, my, I, uh, you know what? Cash. Right. <laughs> my husband started. Um, he had a money tree. I kill everything green. I mean, this is this is the only thing that I could keep alive. But he kept buying these money trees for his setup in the basement. Well, it looks like weed. So everybody, <laughs> <there's> like, <laughs> that's funny. I mean, yeah, that'd be. I guess that would make money too. But yeah, no, we, <laughs> all of these weird Zoom setups and backgrounds and such is just. I know, so and all the virtual things too. Yeah. Um, I I'm ready when you are. I'm all set. We're going. We're already going. Okay, great. <laughs> so yeah, how are you? How is crazy life now? Uh, crazy life now. Uh, you know, the, the, the big stuff, uh, thank God, uh, I am internally grateful for uh, having a, a, you know, a, a home and, and my fiance is well and I am well, my family is well, and, uh, you know, we have uh, food on our table. So, you know, all of these things and, and I'm able to work um, uh, here at home in Columbus. So uh, these are these are great blessings. The the groundhog day nature of life and how that's affected my sanity has has crept in. Uh, yesterday, I go for a walk every day. We live in the old beach world section of uh, Clintonville, and there's all these beautiful uh, there's this beautiful ravine and and wonderful wooded areas to walk around. And I take a, a long about a five mile walk every day. And I went yesterday and did my walk. And then at two o'clock, I had a, about an hour break in my day, and I thought, you know what, I should go take my walk. And I got up and I put my shoes on and I started thinking, did I do this already? Like, did, I, did I do this? And I actually had to like do that in my head, which took 15 seconds to really like get there. Yeah. So then I thought, I, this is a night for ordering food in. Uh-huh. And possibly pouring something to get through the night. <laughs> or maybe it was that that uh, that caused the problem. That that might have. That's interesting that you are doing the long walks because that's something that I I picked up over this time. We decided to get a COVID puppy. Um, ten out of ten, don't recommend. Did you get one too? Uh, the the um, puppies do a mid September, and uh, we will uh, we will hopefully have a puppy by just after Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, what are you getting? Uh, Tom's former uh, long-term relationship, they had a golden retriever, and my former marriage, uh, we had a golden doodle. So we have uh, we, uh, we uh, have a deposit down on an Australian labradoodle. Um, also, uh, I know, I know, I know our listeners will be thinking, some of, many of us 
I know we should be going to the shelters and I know we should be rescuing animals. I absolutely know this, but we also have certain, you know, there's certain issues with allergies and all that kind of stuff and about hair and all that kind of stuff. So for us, we needed to, um, uh, to uh, bring a dog that we could live with. And so um, we uh, chose this, this breed, uh, somebody, a breeder near Cleveland, and, um, and they, uh, they just sent us a notice just the other day that, uh, that the, uh, the bitch, am I allowed to say bitch on this program? The You're bitch. allowed to say bad words on here. All that, the, the, that's the word. It's a, the but bitch. it's not actually a bad word in this Yeah, day. I know. I'm not talking to anybody. It's the dog. Um, the bitch is pregnant, as opposed to what Elton John has been telling us for 40 years. <laughs> nice. We... You know, I completely am with you, and I, I, as far as the, you know, get a dog from a shelter, I am 100%. We actually had to go a step further. We can't even do a golden doodle in case there's too much of the golden in there. Ah, uh, yeah. We have to go, we have standard poodles, um, and that was... They're gorgeous they're, animals. They are wonderful. Our puppy is a bit much. Um, yeah, she's, she's a handful. She's, <laughs> she's sweet. And I told my husband today, we, we got to stop calling her dum-dum um, because mm. it's just not nice. But that's her name. Yeah, it's not. Um, <laughs> we named her Persephone. And I did that kind of, you know, in, in terms of this was mid-March when we decided. And so I got, you know, in the Hades town idea, like, oh, spring will come. And oh, all that. Yeah, then we, we looked it up again, and it's a destroyer. That's a, little, a little bit more toward what she actually is. So. Do you have a name picked up? Sorry. Uh, we've picked names, but we're not telling anybody and, uh, you know, gone through, you know, imaginary name scenarios. So, uh, uh, and we're presuming that we'll be able to get the, the sex of the dog that we uh, are hope, that we asked for, but you never know. So, um, so we're going to, we're just going to let that play out. So the dogs aren't even born then? No, no, the bitch is pregnant, like I said, and I believe, I believe they said September 10th is when they expect the uh, litter. How hard to wait is that? <laughs> it's, you know, this whole period, uh, again, like I, I do feel a great sense of, uh, 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 feel it necessary to say, you know, I, I'm in a, we live in a very fortunate position and, and we are, you know, I work at home and Tom is a, a musician and public school teacher and he has been at home since the middle of March and may or may not go back to teaching in school. We don't know yet. Um, so we've been very fortunate in this situation. We don't have children and we don't um, have to be anywhere. And so all of this has been incredibly, uh, you know, felt very lucky. Uh, I was in New York City. I, I, we also have a home in New York City because I travel back and forth a lot between here, uh, New York and Los Angeles. And um, I left there on the morning. I was meant to be there uh, for a week from the 9th uh, of March for a whole week. And Tom was coming towards the end of that week. We were going through a number of Broadway shows that week. Um, uh, one of them was an opening of a, a new musical that we were meant to go to. And the day before, uh, we had read that someone who worked at the theater tested positive, and then I called the producer of the show, who was, who was a friend of mine, and said, what's the story? And he said that they'd been cleaning it and that it was safe and they were still gonna go forward with it. 
but he understood if we didn't want to come. And I called Tom and we talked it through and I said, let's cancel this and cancel your flight. So we canceled his flight from Columbus to New York. And I got on a different flight early, a few days early from New York back to Columbus. And about two hours later, uh, read online that they'd shut Broadway down completely that day. Yeah. Uh, that there were no performances that night. So there was no opening of a show anyway. And we would have been in New York and probably wanted to come home early because all we had planned to see several shows that weekend. So it, that was jarring. I like, like most people, I think that first couple of weeks was, was very frightening and full of anxiety and that whole what's going to happen and way too much watching of the news and uh, therefore it affecting sleep and it affecting our, just our, our daily cycle, uh, uh, you know, trying to get into routines, which is, is hard enough. Um, when you don't go to work every day and when you don't have kids or a dog or, you know, it's hard to get into a routine or really be self, uh, 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 what's the word, uh, you know, uh, the, the, yeah, what's the word? When you're self-control or whatever, you know, when you, when you make sure that you do things. And so um, that first few weeks uh, in, uh, towards the end of, uh, of March, and then the numbers rising, 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 and, you know, really felt terribly frightening. And then I think once we got to, I don't know, first or second week of April, when we started to see that, you know, uh, Governor DeWine really did something, like he was really at the front of the pack um, at the beginning of all of this. And uh, Dr. Acton was really at the front of the pack and, and really did help us here in Ohio. And, um, you know, there's no knowing why we're where we are now. And of course, yesterday, the mask order being official and uh, I feel that's the right thing to do uh, based on everything I've ever read or everything I've seen. And, um, and it's, I, I find it quite, quite, uh, quite uh, baffling um, how, uh, baffling and, and sort of perhaps terrifically revealing how in this country, I do think that we have a lack of, uh, of uh, interest in expertise. I think expertise doesn't always um, doesn't always reach everybody. It doesn't, uh, people don't think that people in government certainly have expertise or that the people who are given uh, roles in government and, and, and exercise their expertise are not heeded. I, I find that uh, truly baffling actually. I, I think that um, it's an interesting part of American life where, where we, we, a lot of people distrust um, people who are experts. And, and if you, anybody knows me, one of the things that I uh, will say uh, outside of political sphere, anything, the thing I love the most about other people is expertise. And in fact, I remember once for a half an hour, a bunch of men, uh, a bunch of gay men in Provincetown um, standing, you know, having like four o'clock drinks, you know, in the summer at somebody's house in Provincetown. And I met some guy who was in R&D at Gillette. And I said, what's left? Like, what R&D is there at Gillette? Like, shaving is shaving. And he said, oh, you'd be surprised. And for a half an hour, eight men were standing there completely like, tell me more about the shaving. Tell me more about the shaving. How does it work? And how many blades? And like, and because this guy knew everything about steel, you know, alloys and directional blades and, and creams 
and skin, and he was an expert. And I never forgot it because I thought, I, I'm going to listen to that guy. Gillette is the best a man can get. <laughs> it always has been. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, so you, I mean, you're, as a living, you're kind of involved in theater and stuff, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I want to know where, you're not from Columbus. This is, this is your landing spot for right now. But where are you originally from? I was born in Leeds, England, which is central Yorkshire, uh, England, and my parents uh, and sister and I uh, moved to Canada when I was 17 months old and then suburban Detroit when I was three. And so I grew up uh, on the border of Detroit in a, a suburb called Oak Park. And then I went to the University of Michigan, go blue. And uh, I know living here in Columbus, like what the, I mean, I was like the target on the top of my house. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I, it's very funny. When I first moved here, I was like, that's a lot of Ohio State. And uh, now I'm getting used to it. And uh, I uh, went to the University of Michigan and then moved to New York City in 1987 when I was 22. What did you... Like, when did you start doing theater and music? When did that all start for you? Uh, they're separate in my life. Music has always been a central, central part of, of, of me. And uh, from, from the earliest I can remember, or the earliest my parents will, will, will tell me, I was, I was singing. And, uh, but not just like a child might sing. Like I, w I sang well at the match pitch. I, we had, these, we had wonderful public music uh, education in uh, Michigan schools when I was a kid. And in fact, uh, my elementary school music teacher won Michigan Music Teacher of the Year Award twice while I was uh, going through her, her grades. And um, so by the, time I was, by the time I was 10, I could read music fluently. Um, and music, the way I always describe it is that whenever new concepts in music were introduced to me, it's the notion of um, like when, when you're a kid and somebody said, and you say, what's this? And someone says, it's a red pen. Most kids um, will, will probably remember that the first time. You know, it's like, that's a red pen. When they come back to it, they may say, I don't remember what's this thing called again? And then you'll tell them and then they'll get it. With music, I never had to be told twice. So every time there was a concept that came up, I didn't know what it was, and then they told me what it was, and then I was like, check, got it. And I didn't start playing piano until I was almost 14, and one of the things I've, I've said about playing piano is that I always knew how to play the piano, but my hands didn't. And so it felt very natural. Again, I, I went very, very quickly from when I, was four, when I was in eighth grade, by the time I was in 11th grade and played a Beethoven concerto, I, it was only three, three and a half years of study, and it, I went very quickly because I was motivated. But I, again, like inside me, I always, I kind of knew how to play already. Um, I got introduced really heavily to theater in high school, and when I was in 10th grade, the um, uh, drama department, uh, in conjunction with our music teacher, did a production of The Pajama Game. And uh, with and I was a steam heat boy. I got I, I got cast to shovel more coal in the boiler, and uh, that's a lyric for those of you who don't know. And um, uh, and it was a very challenging thing for me because uh, when I was in tenth grade, so uh, I grew up in a very Jewish uh, background, and 
I had gone to Hebrew school, like many of my friends, and which was three days a week, to, uh, two weekdays and a Sunday, and uh, after school. And then you have your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah, and then most people don't go, keep going to Hebrew school. But you could, there was this one place in our area called, he there was a Hebrew high school, and you could still go after your bar mitzvah if you wanted to. And I did, in eighth, ninth, and, and beginning of 10th grade, I did. I, I enjoyed Jewish study and I wanted to learn more. And so at the beginning of that 10th grade, I got cast in the pajama game, but I had to be at rehearsals five days a week and not go to Hebrew high school. So I came home to my parents and I said, I got cast in the musical. And they were, they were very, very encouraging of my singing and performing and, yeah. and musical lives, uh, my musical life. And I said, uh, but I, I, if I, if I want to be in the, in the musical, I have to quit Hebrew school. And it was one of those, you know, <laughs> well, you know, they looked at each other and then my mother said, well, which one do you want to do? And it was like, you know, I was like, which one will disappoint you the least? <laughs> and, um, and I, without, without a pause, I said, I, I want to do the musical. And to their credit, my parents, without a pause, said, go do the musical. And, and so uh, thus ended my Hebrew education. <laughs> I mean, I think in the long run, that's, that's okay. <laughs> For me, it turned out okay. Yeah, it turned out well. I'm glad my parents did that. And so, uh, so that, that was when I got involved in theater. And from the time I was in 10th grade until this morning, um, I've been interested you know, I, I was interested in what I thought I was gonna be was an actor and singer, and, and I have been an actor and singer uh, all throughout my life. But what really interested me was when I got into college and my lifelong friend, Jeffrey Seller, who later went on to co-produce Rent and Avenue Q and My Musical, The Wild Party, and a little show you might've heard of called Hamilton. Um, Jeffrey um, and I grew up together ever since we were very little, and we went to college together, and Jeffrey said, let's write a musical together. And I had never considered writing a musical. I had never written any music, and, but we did. And we played it for a couple of our teachers, um, and uh, they were really supportive of me. And they said, this is, this is something you, you, you do well. And it was one of those moments in my life, I, 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 hope, um, I hope everybody's had this experience with a teacher at some point where like, it's kind of like, it was the, the non-physical way of somebody going like this, hey, look over there. Like, that's the thing that you, 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 you seem to be loving. And the one thing I love about making musicals and writing songs in theatrical contexts is, uh, is the gestalt way of looking at everything and sort of the vertical and the horizontal. So looking, looking at how, how does a song affect what's going on in the story? How does it affect the character and that character's relationship to the story and the other characters? How does the tone uh, affect this moment? What is the energetic component? What is, what is the language that you have to use for this particular character and to tell this particular part of the story? So you're always thinking big, small, big, small, big, small. And because you, you have to be both a playwright and a, 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 a miniaturist. You have to be able to do needlework because sometimes that the, the, the smallest details are what make the difference. And my mind 
is the mind of, of someone who loves to tell stories and loves to, loves to sort of invent worlds. And, and that's uh, what makes it so interesting to me to work in the musical theater. How many ideas have you had that go from just concept to trash can? Does that happen a lot? Uh, you know, again, in the large, small category, you know, uh, you know, uncountable numbers. Um, I think, um, I, I know, I know what some of my idea generators are, and I know what some of my idea um, uh, stoppers are. Um, and the stoppers are always the same. It's really about when uh, I, I struggle when a character, when I don't understand why a character is doing what they're doing or what or why I chose or why the tone changed or, or why the tone didn't change. I'm in a moment like that in particular show where I, I had this whole section. It was really, it's a beautiful, and the thing is, the thing is, it's like, I'm, I, I can write, I can write well, I think, at this point. I, I do write some good things, uh, I, I, and, and that's not meant to be self-serving. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I do write some good things. And this, this thing I wrote for this character is good. It's just not right. And so when the audience gets through the story and gets to that point, they stop engaging with the character, I think. Well, you know, we're early in the development of the show, but I, I stop engaging and I, and I, I spent, no joke, weeks, like spinning it around and asking myself, why don't I engage with this character? What is it that she's talking about? Why wouldn't I engage with these things? They're very important to her. And, and then I realized it was in the tone, it's early in the show, and she was getting too serious too quickly. And it's not unlike meeting a new friend or meeting a friend for coffee. It's like, let's go to North Star and have a coffee. And you sit down and the person starts going, oh, so my life is like awful. And you know, you can only take that for so long with any one person. Yeah. And, and so that, that, the notion of throwing things away, you know, in the large sense, like the Wild Party, there are 20 songs in a, in a, in a storage place in Queens that I wrote that are, weren't in, you know, were in the show at one point, but aren't anymore. And I'd say at least 10, 10 to 12 fully separate songs that get ultimately that get taken out of shows and replaced by other things. And the Adams Family, you know, when we switched from Chicago, we did an eight and a half week run in Chicago prior to New York. I wrote five new songs when we got to New York before we opened in New York and cut three and had probably cut eight prior to that. So it's just part of the job. Is it hard, like as a, cause I mean, obviously you've got your creative team. Is it hard for you when they say we need to cut this number you know, when you've had the concept from the beginning, is it hard to to accept that initially? Uh, there's various reasons one might find difficult to accept. Um, there are cases where, like in the musical Big Fish, there's a, a ballad in the second act that has become a favorite of a lot of singers called uh, I Don't Need a Roof. And um, a lot of students use it for auditions. It's become a well-known song in the theater community. And uh, one of our producers heard that song and the first time and said, I, I don't think that's it. And John August, my writing colleague who wrote the book to the musical and also wrote the screenplay to the film prior to that, John 
I never see, I never saw him like this in the, during the whole nine year process of making that show. But John really went to the mat for that song and turned to that producer and said, you're wrong, you're wrong and here's why. And explain like, and so everybody, what happens in those moments, if, if somebody's gonna be a little like this, then most people in most cases, you, everybody just sort of retreats and goes like, you know, let's give it, we don't have to make this decision today. Um, and then there are cases where, you know, a direct, the director will say, this is not working, this is not the right song. Or, you know, if, they're, if they really want to be sneaky, they'll say, I just don't know how to stage this. And then you're like, well, you know, why do you just give me, why do you just let me shoot myself, please? And, and so, because you know, there's no comeback to that. I'm like, well, you should learn how to stage this. Or, you know, or maybe we'll get somebody who can. Um, you can't, you can't. So you, you, you then have to get, you have to find the why. Like, it's really about, like, are we all doing the same show? And, and usually, usually if you've, if you've cast it well, and I'm using air quotes a lot tonight, I don't know why I don't usually, um, but if you cast it well, and casting is everything. The idea is casting. Uh, who you write it with is casting. Who, you, who directs it is casting. It's all, whoever comes to the, the process, what you're aiming for is that everybody is, is on the same page of telling the story in the same way. And in most cases, because it takes so much time and there's so much chat, my friend Rick Ellis, who I co-wrote, The Addams Family with, says, it always says musicals are talked into existence. And that's really, really common. Like you spend hours and hours and days and days talking about the musical yeah. as you work on it. And so when, when, when there are those moments where, where a song's gotta go, most times I know that. And I'm grateful that my colleagues are tough enough on me and will say, you can do better. That's not good enough. Okay. It's interesting because I'm actually currently helping out with Short North as Rick wrote a musical. Um, so it's been- Yes, I, I know this. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me to hear you say that and to see this process actually happening as it's going, you know, where they're, Michael's listening in and, and they're watching it and it's like, okay, we're going to rewrite this and we're going to rewrite this. It just seems like this constant edit. I mean, it, which is probably why everything takes years and years to do. It is, and, and I, think, I think the general public uh, doesn't need to know this, but the people who are interested in it, um, it, it is fun to know this, which is, it's a, first of all, it's a long form art form. So Jeffrey Eugenides uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for Middlesex, and it's an amazing book. Uh, I think he won the Pulitzer Prize. And, and um, it took him a reported nine, I think nine years to write that book. And, and of course it took that long. And, and that process is usually the writer with an editor who has a real dialogue back and forth. And editors, when they are really good, will say this 14 pages, get rid of this and move this over to here and this character's got, and musicals are these, are, are a living evocation of that idea because they happen in real time in front of you with real people. And the, you have to experience, you have to experience, you have to experience that energetically together. We all come together in a room in a rehearsal room and spend a week with actors just working through the material and, and, and performing once for an invited audience. And then everybody has the same experience. So you can all, you can't blame uh, 
you know, the dog, you know, like when you're reading a script, you got interrupted by the dog. You say, oh, I, was, I wasn't paying attention on page 34. Well, if you weren't paying attention, you were in the room when we were. And um, that experience of figuring out, again, like I said, all of the things that go into the bare bones parts about, uh, about musicals and where uh, songs and story create conflict and uh, create action and move things forward and but, you know, all of those ephemeral things, which is the question of like, is that any good? Like, you know, is that a song that's fun to listen to? And if it's too, and, there, and maybe a song that's too fun to listen to at that moment, because the story wants to go forward. Like, you just learn that over time. How do you, I asked one of our other guests this, Ward Williams, who plays, he was in a, a band for many, many years, and he's been playing on Broadway cellist in the pit. Um, but I asked him of the band, and I asked the same of you. Do you do you have the music first, or do you have the lyrics first for you? Well, there's a it's an age-old question, and the, the age-old answer is that what comes first, the music or the lyrics? And the answer is the contract. <laughs> and and uh, and um, in my case, um, in my case, I'm hearing like a lot of noise. Are you guys good? Is there some sort of feedback going on? Is it me? I'm just I'm checking. I'm not hearing anything. Okay, as long as you're okay, I'm hearing a lot coming, uh, like slapping back. Uh, as long as it's recording, okay. Sounds fine, yeah. Okay, okay great. Uh, so the answer to the question of uh, what comes first, musical lyrics, is actually, in the case of making a musical, for me, it's the character and the story. So it's, it's the question of, what the character is doing, what they want, what they want to talk about, whether or not you're going to have a character sing to somebody or sing about somebody, that right away is different. There's a song in The Wild Party at the end of Act One that one of the leading characters sings about the other, one of the other leading characters. It's called What Is It About Her? But he's singing it to the other woman who wants to get him into bed. And she's trying to get him into bed. Her action, she doesn't sing, but she tries to get him into bed. And while she's trying to do that, he's singing about the other woman. And so there's already there's this conflict between this man and the woman who's there who's not singing at all. But there's also conflict between this man and the woman he's singing about. And so that kind of discovery when you, when you get to that moment in the script and you go, like, what, what's he going to say? What's it going to be? And I remember in that particular case, that particular song, there's a little, there's this van. And I thought, I would just sat at the piano and went, what is it about that makes me wonder. And I knew that that was the song. And so sometimes it's just, and by the way, that's incredibly, um, I talk about this with young people, young writers all the time. There's nothing poetic about that line. Yeah. What is it about her that makes me want her? Like that's natural speech. Right. Um, you know, the class, some of the classic example uh, would be a boy like that who kills your brother. Forget that boy and find another. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. Like, there's very little but for the repetition, the rhyme, yes. But other than that, that's from West Side Story. Other than that, it's, it's natural speech. And um, I put a high, um, I put a high uh, uh, price on natural speech. There's a high value on natural speech I, I, in lyrics for me. 
And um, so sometimes you'll get a musical idea and it will, it, will, uh, it will take shape and then you start figuring out what the language might be that goes with it. Sometimes it's the other way around. Really for me now, is it a whole lyric or a whole piece of music and then I have to set it one way or the other. That doesn't really happen for me much anymore. It, I do lots of little bits and connect the dots. Crazy. I'm always, that's always fascinating to me. I, my brain does not necessarily work in those, in those facets all the time, but when did you, what was the first thing? Cause you said in college, you, you wrote your first musical. What was that? A terrible musical um, that came in the mail the other day, actually. And I, I had it in a group of papers uh, in New York city that I had my assistant uh, send over. And uh, it's actually right there on the shelf. It's called, uh, it's called Our Heroic Man. And it was, Jeffrey um, had discovered that there were a bunch of Jack and the Beanstalk tales, like Paul Bunyan tales, uh, and um, that, that aren't just about Jack and the Beanstalk. And he amalgamated uh, a number of these tales, and we wrote this 45-minute musical. It was never produced, it was never, no, I don't even think anybody ever sang it except me. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was really, I mean, it's bad. I, I looked at some of that music, it's bad. Um, but I think, um, I, I always say this about starting a musical. If you knew how hard it was going to be, you would never start. And, um, and, and I always, uh, always feel, you know, you, you don't get better until you do the thing. You know, it's like sports is the same. And anything, practicing medicine. What do they call it, by the way? You, you practice medicine, you practice law, you have a yoga practice. You don't, there is no um, supposition that you nailed it, you know? It's always something that's in process. And such is the same with creativity. You never get it right, quote unquote. You're just attempting uh, to use your experience and your insight uh, into and where you are in your life. I'm 55 now and the things I'm interested in writing about and the way I write about them is certainly going to be different than the things I wrote about 25 years ago and in the way I wrote 25 years ago. I know th this is probably wrong because this is probably saying like choose one of your children to send, you know, what is your favorite thing that you've written? Do you have one? It's like saying, choose one of your children. Um, so I'll send some of the children out of the room when I give this answer. <laughs> um, I, no, I mean, I, I, I do, um, I, I had a, a challenging uh, uh, life, uh, uh, personal year in 2011. And at the end of that year, I got uh, an email uh, from, the man who was uh, the newly appointed, relatively newly appointed music director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, uh, Tim Selig. Uh, and he said they were putting together a concert for a year and a half later uh, that was going to be 10, about 10 different composers writing five minute pieces about Harvey Milk and their uh, impressions of Harvey Milk, you know, anything you wanted to write about Harvey Milk. And I called Tim and I said, I don't want to write a five minute piece, but I'd I want to write a 60 minute piece can I do the whole thing? Can I write a whole thing? And I'm not sure what, you know, what got into me that made me want to do that, but it felt like I was in my late forties and I, excuse me, I had never read, I had never written anything specifically about my 
uh, my life as a gay man or, or my community, uh, the gay community. And I wanted to uh, do that. And um, they ended up saying yes. It was a co-commission with 10 other choruses across the country. We premiered it in 2013. And we premiered it on the very day, on June 26, 2013, that the Defense of Marriage Act in California, Defense of Marriage Act nationally and Proposition 8 in California had been struck down that morning by the Supreme Court of the United States. And that evening, we put on a concert two weeks from the spot where George Moscone, the mayor, and Harvey Milk had been gunned down in cold blood uh, for 1,500 San Franciscans who had no idea what they were going to see. And um, we had 300 men on stage, three soloists, including me. I got to play Harvey Milk and 27-piece orchestra. And it was all recorded over three nights. Um, and it culminated on Friday afternoon, actually. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary week. Friday after, by, by uh, Wednesday, the Supreme Court decision came down and on Friday, the, attorney, the then Attorney General of the state of California, Kamala Harris, uh, uh, allowed uh, gay weddings. And the first gay wedding was the women plaintiffs in the Prop 8 case. And they got married at City Hall in San Francisco and the chorus sang one of my songs as part of their wedding. And we all went to see Kamala Harris uh, officiate this wedding. And then that night, we all did the final performance. And Harvey Milk's been done about 40 times since uh, around the world, including Kristen Chenoweth and I did it with the Orchestra of St. Luke's and about 125 amazing Broadway singers um, uh, on the stage of David Gavin Hall at Lincoln Center in 2014. Um, we did it with 750 people on stage in 2016 in Denver for, in front of 5,000 people. Um, that was at the, uh, the Gala Convention, which is the Gay and Lesbian Choral Association, where 5,000 gay and lesbian uh, members of choruses at the same time that the um, conservative uh, conference was going on where Donald Trump um, and Sarah Palin had spoken only a couple days prior. And it was in the same convention center in, in uh, Denver. And so, you know, what a, what a thing. And um, so Harvey Milk has really been uh, this, uh, you know, the word has now been coined uh, artivism. Um, it's been a, an opportunity to, to bring my passion for um, uh, that kind of art making along with the passion for the things that Harvey Milk stood for and my support of the LGBTQ community. And so that, that really does have a special place in my, my career and my life. Oh, that's amazing. How cool. That's awesome. I have to, I, I have to ask you, to, if you want to get personal, you don't have to, but how did you and Tom meet? <laughs> uh, we met through a friend. Uh, Tom, Tom plays multiple woodwinds, and he plays a lot of the short north stages. And I needed somebody to play for something. And uh, I've been talking to a friend who had, you know, often what happens in, in the business is that you, um, you only remember the last person you met. You know, it's, it's, it's like, who do you need to be a music director for something? I'm like, oh, I just talked to so-and-so yesterday, call her. And, and that was what had happened. So I, I was talking to a friend and we got connected that way. And uh, we were both in different relationships. And so uh, there was a bit of, uh, you know, you speak, the song begins, and then I hear violins. But it was a, it was a wild magic. It was a while before um, we both uh, felt we were ready to step out of those other relationships, and uh, which we did do at the end of 2016. And um, in early 2017, 
I came here to Columbus to visit Tom. And uh, of course he took me to all of the, you know, fun spots in town. And uh, I really loved the spirit of Columbus. And um, the spirit of Columbus sounds like a ship that we would all go on. Um, yeah, I, I really did love the, the spirit of uh, Columbus and, and uh, the fact that I also grew up in the Midwest, I think it ticked a certain home box that I hadn't had ticked for a long time. And, and the truth is, as I've, as I've learned, I, I, I think my days in living in New York City full time were, were coming to an end. Uh, well, they did come to an end, but I think it was the right time for them to, for my full timeness in New York City to come to an end because I really love um, being here and, you know, I, I can get, I can get to my apartment in New York City in four and a half hours from this seat. So it's really, uh, that's really nothing, you know, in, in the modern world, it's really nothing. So I love being here. Aw, we're glad you're here. Thanks. <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to meet you on New Year's Eve, which was, you know, kind of a big deal for you that evening. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got it for those who don't know what that you know I was I was like 2020 yes yeah, no it wasn't that um, uh, I uh, proposed to Tom uh, at the Garden Theater and uh, we went to see uh, Saturday Night Fever um, and uh, of all this staying alive and um, and uh, and then there was a little bit of a break after the show and drinks and food and then everybody gathered back into the main theater. Uh, uh, auditorium to bring in the new year and that was when I grabbed Tom's hand and said hey I, we're gonna go a different way and there's a VIP room that's on the mezzanine level uh, behind the seats where like there's a light booth there and and our friends uh, Tom Warren and Adam Williams decorated the whole thing with flowers and candles and chocolates and and uh, they commissioned some art for us that was so beautiful by Justin uh, Robertson squigs is his, is his art uh, this sort of nickname, and uh, that was a, a image of me and Tom. And uh, anyway, and I proposed to Tom. And the 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 craziest timing was I had this really long letter that I read to him, and like single space, it's like really long. And I I'm a crier, so I started crying right away. And and I said, and I I wanted to pick this moment. I wanted to pick this moment at the beginning of this year, so that we could. Uh, you know, start our life together in a new year because um, my divorce was finalized in 2019, and I, I just wanted to, I just wanted a, that to be the past. And um, uh, and right as I said that, they were going three, two, one, and, and I was like, in this new year, happy new year, and it was. It was the chills, and we turned and like looked. We couldn't see anything, but we looked in that direction. And then I went back and finished uh, finished up, which was basically just the get on the knee and give him the ring and all, and you know that that fun stuff. So um, it was very special. We had a lot of our our Columbus family uh, there, you know, friend family of friends there, and uh, all of our theater folks that we've gotten to know and, and love very much. That was such a fun night. We. You know, going through the month of performances as a 65-year-old mother um, of Tony, that <laughs> we didn't know what that New Year's Eve was going to be like. Because, you know, it's kind of like, well, we can't go anywhere else. And so even a bunch of us were saying, like, are you going to go? Are you going to bring a date? It was a blast. 
it was, I guess I never realized how much fun a gathering like that after a month of Saturday Night Fever could be. It was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was really fun. It was fun. I miss, uh, I miss those gatherings. So hopefully uh, we'll all be able to do them uh, in uh, relatively short order. There are masks and get out there. What, are you working on anything now? I sound like Sunday in the Park with George. Are you working on something new? Oh, very nice. It's very nice. <laughs> Criminal number seven. Um, I am working on a great number of things. Um, only, I only say great number of things only because I, I, I've said yes to a lot uh, during the past year, but really the past four months, I've got, I've really started to try and get involved with as much as possible. Um, nobody's, not too many people are licensing or putting on musicals at the moment. And um, so I'm my, a large part of my income comes from licensing of my shows and the productions of my shows. The United Kingdom, a 30 week tour of the Adams Family has been postponed and pushed off to next year. And, and any number of, of of things have been uh, postponed. And uh, so I've taken on a lot of stuff, but um, I'm working on, uh, uh, with several partners, uh, uh, we sold a new television show to HBO Max that has uh, a significant musical component to it. And I'm an executive producer and writing the songs for that show. And we're nearing uh, the end of the first draft of writing the pilot episode and identifying where the songs are. So the next few weeks up, I start writing those songs. Um, we're near the tail end of closing a deal on a original movie musical that I'm writing all of the songs for that has producers and a writer and a director. And so it's all got a real trajectory and has a real potential to be made. Uh, so um, that would be great. I've written three songs already for that project. And I have several musicals that I'm working on. Uh, the one in the front at the moment is uh, an adaptation of the film, The Turning Point, which you may recall uh, starred Shirley MacLaine and, uh, uh, and uh, Anne Bancroft, um, about two women in the ballet world who are in their late 30s who are, are at a turning point both emotionally and physically. And um, when they reunite with all the sparks that fly and how their family, one of the women's families are involved. And it's centered around the ballet world. And, it's been really fun to write. Uh, I've written about 60 pages of the first act. And, and you know what? Most first acts are probably 70 pages. And, and I'm not anywhere near the end. I, I'm probably 60 pages away from the end of the first act. And so I know that it's way overwritten. But I also know that I'm, I'm uh, choreographing the show. And, and I'm not actually choreographing the show. But I, I'm in my head. And so I write long descriptions in the in the script like this is what happens and it happens here and this is where they stand and they look at each other and because i i'm really visualizing what this show could be it's so much about movement and dance and circles and so i do think um uh and when i say circles i mean literally like you know, there's only so many directions dancers can go, right? And so um, I have this notion of sort of a, a, a wheel within a wheel within a wheel on the stage and things being able to turn in multiple ways. Um, and literally the turning point, you know, being made, uh, made physical. And so that's in its early days of being developed. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this call, you know, there's, it takes a long time. So I mean, you know, I just, I hope I live to 100. 
will. <laughs> well, and anything you want to write for, you know, women of a certain age that can play more than just a mom, you know, you're welcome to do that. <laughs> I, I, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, my goodness. You are amazing. I cannot wait to hang out with you in real life again, hopefully sooner than later. Well, but thank, thank you, you so much for coming on to chat. And thanks for inviting me on to this program. And, uh, and I, um, I would normally end with go blue, but uh, I want to, I don't know what you yell out in Columbia. Go, go bucks. Yeah. Oh, you, you that's funny. Any okay. of my Michigan people see that, I'm going to get my card taken away. We won't take your car. You can say whatever you want to. Good. I'm going to say go Columbus. There, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. We Bye. Bye. Cool. I'm, I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, that was cool. That was very cool. Yeah. I mean, I've known, he's friends with enough of my mutual friends so that they were like, oh my gosh, you'll, it'll be great. It'll be easy. He loves to tell stories. And I'm like, I know that's not, that's yeah. not the issue. It's me not being like, <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, you wrote that music log. Yeah, I know. I know you did. That's really good. And he play. I mean, he's playing. You played and sang. That was cool. That was really cool. Yeah. Neat. Amazing. This is a great format for like having folks like him on too. Like, I, I guess I was also kind of, I thought he was in New York for some reason, but um, yeah, no, like I think it, it's good to be able to reach out to other people and everything through this format. And, you know, it's. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll have a, a side segment of like Krista's favorite people or like. Yeah. Krista geeks out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. try to go for, I mean, it sounds crazy, but like reach out to the publicist of Ben Folds and be like, how willing would he Why not, be? right? Last year we had Ward on. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, whatever you want to say, like, just reach out and just drop names. Who cares? You know, we just, yeah. I mean, we've had Congress people on and all kinds of shit. So Mike Larson was an Emmy nominated writer. That's an in for all kinds of things. I mean, shit, he could get us hooked up with like potentially Ryan Reynolds. You know, I mean, he wrote for two guys and a girl. So, I mean, let's give it a shot, you know? Yeah. Gracious. So. Okay, well, I need to go to rehearsal, get food, call candy in that order. Cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks, bro. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Boxland Media. Think big.